Random House Audiobooks presents Star Wars Cloak of Deception by James Lucino. Read for you by Alexander Adams. Luxuriating in the unfailing light of countless stars, the Trade Federation freighter Revenue lazed at the edge of Dorvala's veil of alabaster clouds. The freighter resembled a saucer, whose center had been pared away to create two massive hangar arms and a stalked center sphere that housed the great ship's hyperdrive reactors. Forward, the curving arms fell short of each other, as if in a failed attempt to close the circle. But in fact, the gap was there by design with each arm terminating in colossal docking claws and gaping hangar portals. Like some gluttonous beast, a Trade Federation vessel didn't so much load as gobble cargo, and for close to three standard days, the revenue had been feeding at Dorvala. The outlying planet's principal commodity was lomite ore, a major component in the production of transparasteel viewports and starfighter canopies. Ungainly transports ferried the strip-mined ore into high orbit, where the payloads were transferred to a fleet of self-propelled barges, tenders, and cargo pods, many of them as large as shuttles, and all bearing the spherical flame sigil of the Trade Federation. Safeguarding the herd from attacks by pirates or other raiders flew patrols of bullet-nosed quad-thruster starfighters, wanting shields but armed with rapid-fire laser cannons. The droids that piloted the ships answered to a central control computer located in the freighter's center sphere. At the aft curve of the center sphere stood a command and control tower. The ship's bridge occupied the summit, where a robed figure paced nervously before an array of inwardly inclined viewports. Status, the robed figure hissed. The revenue's Nemoidian navigator responded from a throne-like chair set below the burnished floor of the bridge walkway. The last of the cargo pods is being taken aboard, Commander Dauphine. Very well, then, Dauphine replied. Recall the starfighters. The navigator nodded. As you will, Commander. Captain of the Revenue's skeleton crew of living beings, Dauphine had a pair of front-facing red oval eyes, a prominent muzzle, and a fish-lipped slash of mouth. Veins and arteries pulsed visibly beneath the surface of puckered and mottled pale green skin. Small for his species, his thin frame was draped in blue robes and a tall cone of black fabric. Even his headpiece suggested wealth and high office. The navigator was similarly attired in robes and headpiece, though his were of a simpler design. He communicated with the devices that encircled the pilot's chair by means of data readout goggles that cupped his eyes and a disc-shaped comlink that hid his mouth. The revenue's communications technician was a jowled and limpid-eyed Celestin. The officer who interfaced with the central control computer was a Gran, 
three-eyed with a hercine face. Beaked and green-complexioned, the ship's assistant bursar was an ishy tib. Delphine hated having to suffer aliens aboard his bridge, but he was compelled to do so as an accommodation to the lesser shipping concerns that had allied with the Trade Federation. Humaniform droids saw to all other tasks on the bridge. Dauphine had resumed his pacing when the Celestin spoke. Commander, Dovala Mining reports that the payment they received a short 100,000 Republic credits. Dauphine waved his long-fingered hand in dismissal. Tell her to recheck her figures. The Celestin relayed Dauphine's words and waited for a reply. She claims that you said the same thing the last time we were here. Dauphine exhaled theatrically and gestured to a large circular screen at the rear of the bridge. Display her. The magnified image of a red-haired, freckle-faced human woman was resolving on the screen by the time Dauphine reached it. I am not aware of any missing credits, he said without preamble. The woman's blue eyes flashed. Don't lie to me, Dauphine. First it was 20,000, then 50, now 100. How much will we have to forfeit the next time the Trade Federation graces Dorvala with a visit? Dauphine glanced knowingly at the Ishitib, who returned a faint grin. Your world is far removed from normal space lanes, he said calmly toward the screen. Your situation, therefore, demands additional expenditures. Of course, if you are displeased, you could always do business with some other concern. The woman snorted a rueful laugh. Other concern? The Trade Federation has put everyone else under. Dauphine spread his large hands. Then what is a hundred thousand credits, more or less? Extortion is what it is. The sour expression Dauphine adopted came naturally to his slack features. I suggest you file a complaint with the Trade Commission on Coruscant. The woman fumed. Her nostrils flared and her cheeks reddened. You haven't heard the last of this, Dauphine. Dauphine's mouth approximated a smile. Ah, oh, once again, you are mistaken. Abruptly, he ended the transmission, then swung back to face his fellow Nemoidian. Inform me when the loading process is concluded. Deep in the hangar arms, droids supervised the disposition of the cargo pods from traffic stations located high above the deck. Scattered throughout the hangars were security automata, toting modified Blastec combat rifles, some with dispersal tips. The majority of the droids that comprised the Revenue Security Force were simply appendages of the freighter's central control computer, but a few had been equipped with a small measure of intelligence. The foreheads and chest plastrons of these lanky commanders were emblazoned with yellow markings similar to military unit flashes, though less for the sake of other droids than for the flesh and bloods to whom the commanders ultimately answered. OLR-4 was one such commander. Blaster rifle gripped in both hands and angled across his chest, the droid stood in Zone 2 of the ship's starboard hangar arm, halfway between the bulkheads that defined the immense space. OLR-4 was aware of the activity around him, but only in a vague way. Rather, OLR-4 had been tasked by the central control computer to watch for anything out of the ordinary, for any event that fell outside performance parameters defined by the computer itself. 
The resounding thud that accompanied the roosting of a nearby cargo pod was, given the size of the craft, well within those parameters. But the same couldn't be said for the hissing of pressure relief valves or the metallic clanks and stridencies that prefaced the slow rise of the pod's uncommonly large circular forward hatch. OLR-4's long head pivoted and his oblique optical sensors fixed on the pod. Magnified and sharpened, the captured image was transmitted to the central control computer, which instantly compared it to a catalog of similar images. Discrepancies were noted. Even as OLR-4's photoreceptors were scrutinizing the rising hatch, additional security droids were already hurrying to assume positions to all sides of the suspect pod. OLR-4 planted his boot-like feet in a combat stance and leveled his blaster rifle. The open hatch should have revealed the interior of the pod, but instead it exposed what seemed to be yet another hatch, sealed shut. Before OLR-4 could move, the inner hatch had telescoped from the pod with enough force to launch two security droids and three worker droids halfway across the hangar. Immediately, OLR-4 and three others opened fire on the battering ram and the cargo pod itself, but the blaster bolts were deflected and sent ricocheting through the hole. OLR-4 rushed to one side, firing steadily and intent on gaining a better vantage on the intruders. In front of him, two security droids lost their heads to well-placed shots. OLR-4's internal monitors told him that his blaster was overheating and close to depletion, but OLR-4 kept firing while he attempted to angle behind the battering ram. He had almost reached the pod when a bolt caught him in the left shoulder. He staggered, but somehow managed to remain upright until a second bolt struck him in the opposite shoulder. He landed on his back with his legs wedged beneath the pod. Looking up, he had a glimpse of the armed force that had infiltrated the freighter. A dozen or so bipedal flesh and bloods, sheathed in mimetic suits and black body armor, their faces hidden behind rebreather masks whose oxygen recyclers resembled fangs. OLR-4's photoreceptors focused on a human with long black hair that fell in thick coils to his broad shoulders. The servo motors of the droid's right hand tightened on the blaster's trigger bar, but the fatigued and overheated weapon's only response was a mournful whir as it powered down and shut off. Glimpsing the droid, the long-haired human swung and fired. OLR-4's heat sensors redlined and his overloaded systems wailed. Circuits melting, he relayed a final image to the central control computer, then winked out of existence. The reassuring hum of machines on the revenue's bridge was interrupted by a grating tone from the scanner array. Gliding across the command walkway, Dalte Dauphine queried the droid stationed at the scanner. Long-range monitors report a cluster of small ships advancing all speed on our position, the droid answered. What? What did you say? The Celestin elaborated. Authenticators identify the ships as cloak shapes and one Tempest-class gunship. Dauphine's jaw dropped. An attack? Dauphine had started for the display screen when another worrisome tone sounded, this time from the station of the systems officer. 
The Grand Officer said, The Central Control Computer is reporting a disturbance in Zone 2 of the starboard hangar arm. Still find gate. What sort of disturbance? The droids are firing on one of the cargo pods. Those brainless machines? If they ruin any cargo... Commander, starfighters are on screen, the Celestin reported. Delphine's blinking red orbs darted from one alien to the other in mounting concern. Starfighters changing vector, breaking into two elements. The Celestin turned to Delphine, flying the imprint of the nebula front. The nebula front? Delphine rushed to the display screen, then raised his long, fat forefinger to indicate the jet-black gunship. That ship. The Hawkbat, the Celestin said in a rush. The ship of Captain Cole. Starfighters are forming up for attack, the droid updated. Dauphine turned to the navigator. Enable defense systems. Central control computer reports continued blaster fire in the starboard hangar. Eight security droids destroyed, said the Grand. Defense system has the nebula front starfighters in target lock. Deflector shields are raised. Starfighters firing, said the droid. Intense light exploded behind the rectangular viewports and shook the bridge hard enough to rattle a droid off its feet. Turbo lasers responding. Dauphine swung to the viewports in time to see hyphens of pulsed cyan light streak from the freighter's equatorially mounted batteries. Where is our closest reinforcement? One star system distant, the Nemoidian navigator said. The Acquisitor. Send a distress call. Is that wise, Commander? Dauphine understood the implication. Rescue was always a belittling event. But Dauphine was certain that he could offset the humiliation by protecting the revenue's cargo. Just do as I say, he told the navigator. The massed group that had infiltrated the Revenue were a diverse lot, as varied as the starfighters that were flying support, humans and non-humans, male and female. Protected by camouflage suits and matte black armor ply, and sporting grip-soled deck boots and combat goggles, they emerged from behind the battering ram that had afforded them an element of surprise, firing state-of-the-art assault rifles and shoulder-slung field disruptors. The human OLR-4 had nearly gotten the drop on, strode fearlessly to the center of the yawning hangar, checked a readout on his wrist comm, and tugged the rebreather and goggles from his face. Beneath the apparatus, the human's dark-complexioned face was still a mask, thickly bearded with coarse black hair and rashed from temple to temple with small diamond-shaped tattoos. His violet eyes surveyed the damage with obvious dispassion. There wasn't a security droid in sight, but the deck was littered with their remains. A human member of the team kicked aside the severed arm of a security droid. These things could be dangerous if they ever learned to think straight. Shoot straight, the bearded man amended. Tell that to Rasper, Captain Cole, another said. Boiny, a Rhodium. It was a droid that sent Rasper on his way. A green-skinned and round-eyed male... Boiny had a tapered snout and a crest of pliant yellow spines. A lucky droid, a luckier shot, a Rhodian female remarked. 
That doesn't mean we treat this like an exercise, Cole warned, eyeing everyone. The central control computer will be deploying backup units soon enough, and we've got a kilometer to go before we hit the center sphere. The infiltrators glanced down the curved hangar toward a bulkhead that loomed in the distance. High overhead were massive box girders and I-beams, cranes, maintenance gantries, and hoists, a puzzle of atmosphere and vectoring ducts. A human female, the only among them, whistled softly. Star's end. You could hide an invasion force in here. As dark-complexioned as coal, she had short brown hair and an elegantly angular face. Even the mimetic suit could not camouflage her shapeliness. That would mean spending some of the profits, Rella, a male human said. And the Nemoidians don't do that unless they can spend it on new robes. Cole raised his bearded chin to two of his band. Stay with the pod. We'll make contact when we have the bridge. He swung to the others. Team one, take the outer rim corridor. The rest of you are with me. The revenue shuddered slightly. Muted explosions could be heard in the distance. Cole cocked an ear. That'll be our ships. Sirens began to blare throughout the hangar. Rella gazed at the far-off bulkhead. They're sealing off the hangar. Cole waved a gesture to the first team. Move out. We'll rendezvous at the starboard turbo lifts. He took a few steps, then stopped. One more thing. You get blasted by a droid. Back to rehabilitation comes out of your pay. Dalte Dauphine stood rigidly on the bridge's walkway, watching in horror as the nebula front showed his ship no mercy. It was all Dauphine could do to keep himself rooted on the walkway as he cursed the terrorists under his breath. In return for having been awarded what amounted to exclusive rights to trade in the outlying star systems, the Trade Federation had pledged to the Galactic Senate on Coruscant that it would content itself with remaining a mercantile power and refrain from becoming a naval power through the accumulation of war machines. However, the further the giant ships traveled from the core, the more often they fell victim to attacks by pirates, privateers, and terrorist groups like the Nebula Front, whose broad membership had grievances not only with the Federation, but also with distant Coruscant itself. As a result, the Senate had granted permission for the freighters to be equipped with weapons of defense, to safeguard them in the unpoliced systems strewn between the major trade routes and hyperlanes. But that had only forced the raiders to upgrade their armaments, and in turn prepared the way for periodic strengthenings of Trade Federation defenses. But defense allotments were subject to Senate sanction, and freighters like the Revenue frequently found themselves defenseless against fighter craft piloted by seasoned raiders. Well aware of these shortcomings, Dalte Dauphine saw the ship and its cargo rapidly slipping from his grasp. Dauphine firmed his fleshy lips in anger. Instruct the central control computer to activate all droids, all ship defenses, and prepare to repel borders, he brayed. In the starboard hangar arm, Cole's team had barely made it through the bulkhead door when every device in Zone 3 conspired to prevent them from getting one meter closer to the acceleration compensator shaft that connected the center sphere to its embracing arms. 
Overhead cranes threw grappling claws at them. Oxygen levels plummeted. Even worker droids joined the fray, brandishing fusion cutters and power calibrators as if they were flame projectors and vibroblades. Central controls turned the entire ship against us, Cole yelled. Wellis squeezed off bolts and a posse of hydrospanner wielding TR droids. What did you expect, Cole? The royal welcome? Cole gestured Boyne, Rella, and the rest of his team toward the centersphere turbo lifts. Sirens shrieked and howled in the thin air. Crisscrossing and ricocheting blaster bolts created a pyrotechnic display worthy of a Republic Day parade on Coruscant. The team raced through the final bulkhead door and fought their way to the closest bank of turbo lifts. The hatch that accessed the transfer tubes was locked down. Boyne! Cole shouted. The Rodian holstered his blaster and hurried forward, eyeing the hatch up and down, then moved to the control panel set into the wall. Preparing to slice the code, he rubbed his palms together and cracked his long, suction-tip-equipped fingers. Before he could lay a hand on the panel keys, Cole slapped him in the back of the head. What is this, amateur night? Cole asked with a menacing scowl. Blow the thing! Dauphine was pacing the walkway when the bridge hatch blew inward, loosing a brief storm of paralyzing heat. Cole's band of six hurried in behind a roiling cloud of smoke, their mimetic suits allowing them to blend even with the burnished bulkheads of the bridge. Quickly and efficiently, they disarmed the Gran and shot restraining bolts onto the chest plastrons of the droids. Pulling off his rebreather mask, Cole tapped a code into his wrist comlink and raised it to his mouth. Base team, we have the bridge. Move the pod into zone three and set it down as close as possible to the inner wall hangar portal. I'll be there in a minute. Cole zeroed the comlink. His eyes roamed over the faces of his five living captives, settling finally on Dauphine. Then he drew his blaster. Spreading his arms wide in a gesture of surrender, Dauphine took two backward steps as Cole approached. You would shoot an unarmed individual, Captain Cole? Cole pressed the barrel of the weapon to Dauphine's ribcage. I'd shoot an unarmed Nemoidian, and I'd sleep better for it. He glared at Dauphine for a long moment, then holstered the blaster and turned to the Rodian member of his band. Boyne, get to work, and be quick about it. Cole swung back to Dauphine. Repeatedly poking Dauphine in the chest with his forefinger, Cole moved him backwards along the walkway until they reached the navigator's chair. A final poke sent Dauphine off the walkway and into the seat. Cole jumped down to face him. We need to discuss your cargo, Commander. The cargo? Dauphine stammered. Lomite, destined for Sluis Van. To the depths with the ore, Cole snarled. I'm talking about the Orodium. Dauphine tried to keep his red eyes from bulging. His nictating membranes spasmed, and he blinked half a dozen times. Orodium? Cole leaned toward him. You're carrying two billion in Orodium ingots. And should I refuse to submit? Without taking his eyes from Dauphine, Cole pointed to his Rodian comrade. Boiny there is affixing a thermal detonator to the revenue's fuel driver control system. As I understand it, the device will trigger an explosion large enough to destroy your ship in... Uh, Boiny? Sixty minutes, Captain, 
Voiny shouted, holding aloft a metallic sphere the size of a stink melon. Cole pulled an object from the thigh pouch pocket of his mimetic suit and slapped it against the back of Dauphine's left hand. Dauphine saw that it was a timer, already counting down from sixty minutes. He raised his eyes to Cole's steadfast gaze. About the ingots, Cole said. Dauphine nodded. Yes, all right. If you promise to spare the ship. Cole laughed shortly. The revenue is history. But you have my word, I'll spare your life if you do as you're told. Captain, said Cole's man at the communications station. Vessel emerging from hyperspace. Authenticators paint her as the trade-fed freighter Acquisitor. The look Cole directed at Dauphine was one of genuine surprise. Maybe you're not as thick-skulled as you look. He leapt up onto the walkway and turned to the viewport array. Rella joined him. The scenario has changed, Cole announced to everyone. The Inquisitor will launch droid ships as soon as it's within range. Order the Hawkbat to take the fight to the freighter. Dauphine allowed a smile of satisfaction. Perhaps you will have to forego your treasure after all, Captain Cole. Cole shot him a withering glance. I'm not leaving without it, Commander, and neither are you. He reached for Dauphine's right wrist to regard the countdown timer. Fifty-five minutes. Cole, Rella said leadingly. He looked at her askance. Without the erodium, we don't get paid, sweetheart. She took her lower lip between her perfect teeth. Yes, but we have to be alive to spend it. He shook his head. Death's not in the cards, at least not in this hand. Plucking Dauphine from the command chair and standing him on the walkway, Cole shoved him toward the bridge's ruined hatch. Double time, Commander. Our departure window has just narrowed. In the chaotic gloom of the starboard hangar arm, a final pod moving on repulsor lift toward a Zone 3 docking bay didn't draw much attention. The pod gave no hint that, like the terrorist's craft, it carried a living cargo. Strapped into back-to-back -back seats were two human males who, in dress, were the polar opposite of Dalte Dauphine. Their light-colored tunics and trousers were loose-fitting and unadorned, their knee-high boots were made of nerf hide, and they affected neither headpieces nor jewelry. The fraudulent cargo pod lacked viewports of any sort, but vidcams concealed in the hull transmitted assorted views of the hangar to display screens inside the craft. On observing the disorder Cole's band had left in its wake, the young man in the forward seat remarked, Captain Cole has left us an easy trail to follow, Master. He has indeed, Padawan, but the trail you take into the forest may not be the one you wish to follow when leaving. Stretch out with your feelings, Obi-Wan. Fairly squeezed into the aft seat, the older man was also the larger of the pair. His broad face was fully bearded, and his thick mane of graying hair was pulled back from a gently sloping noble brow. His name was Qui-Gon Jinn. His counterpart at the controls of the pod, Obi-Wan Kenobi, had a youthful, clean-shaven face and a cleft chin. His brown hair was cropped short, save for a short tail at the rear of his head, and a single thin plate that fell behind his ear to his right shoulder, a sign of his Padawan rank. 
peculiar to the order to which Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan belonged, the word meant apprentice or protege. That order was known as the Jedi Knights. Master, do you see any sign of their craft? Obi-Wan asked over his shoulder. Qui-Gon turned in his seat to indicate an open pod at the lower left of Obi-Wan's heads-up display screen. That one. They must be planning to launch from the inner rim hangar portal. Set us down nearby, but be mindful not to draw attention. Cole is sure to have posted sentries. Would you like to assume the piloting, Master? Obi-Wan asked peevishly. Qui-Gon smiled to himself. Only if you're tiring, Padawan. Obi-Wan compressed his lips. I'm anything but tired, Master. He regarded the display screen for a moment. I found us a good place. As if under the guidance of droids in the hangar traffic stations, the pod settled on its quartet of disc-shaped landing gear. The two Jedi fell silent while they watched the vidcam feeds. After a long moment, a pair of human males emerged from Cole's pod. You were right, Master, Obi-Wan said softly. Cole is becoming predictable. We can hope, Obi-Wan. One of the sentries circled the pod, then returned to the open hatch where the other was waiting. Now's our chance, Qui-Gon said. You know, I know what to do, Master, but I still don't understand your reasoning. We could surprise Cole here and now. It's more important that we discover the location of the Nebula Front's base, Padawan. There'll be time then to put an end to Captain Cole's exploits. Qui-Gon flipped a switch that opened the circular front hatch. A cacophony of skirling sirens greeted them. The two Jedi climbed out into the red glow of emergency lighting that suffused the hold. No object was more symbolic of the Jedi Knights than the polished alloy cylinders Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan wore on the hide belts that cinched their tunics. The crystal-focused lightsaber, however, was not the true source of a Jedi's power, for that sprang from the omnipresent energy field that permeated all life and bound the galaxy together, an energy field the Jedi knew as the Force. Moving with preternatural silence and swiftness, Qui-Gon advanced on Cole's pod, the lightsaber gripped in his right hand, concealing himself at every opportunity behind other pods. With all the noise in the hangar, he knew that it wasn't going to be easy to distract the two guards, but he had to buy Obi-Wan at least a few moments. Sprawled atop the curving nose of one of the pods was what remained of a battle droid's upper torso and elongated head. Glancing at Cole's sentries, Qui-Gon thumbed the activator button above the lightsaber's ridged hand grip. A rod of brilliant green energy hissed from the sword's alloy hilt. With a single one-handed swipe of his lightsaber, Qui-Gon cleaved the droid's head from its thick neck. At the same time, he extended his left hand, palm outward, and with a blast of force power, sent the severed head hurtling across the hangar, where it struck the deck with a strident clank, not five meters from where the terrorists stood. The pair swung to the sound with weapons raised. And in that instant, Obi-Wan disappeared in a blur, headed for Cole's pod. Mid-level, in the freighter's center sphere, 
Cole, Rella, Boyney, and the rest of Cole's band gazed wide-eyed and open-mouthed at the cache of a rhodium ingots, which had been removed from the revenue's security cabin and piled lovingly atop a repulsor sled. Hypnotic in their beauty, the ingots glowed with a constantly shifting inner light that summoned all colors of the rainbow. Even Dauphine and his four bridge officers could scarcely tear their eyes away. Cole snapped out of his reverie and turned to Dauphine, whose thin wrists were secured in stun cuffs. You have our gratitude, Commander. Most Nemoidians wouldn't have been so obliging. Dauphine glowered. You go too far, Captain. Cole's broad shoulders heaved in dismissal. Tell that to the members of the Trade Federation Directorate. He nodded to Rella to get the sled underway, then took Boiny by the shoulders and steered him toward an inset control panel. Patch into the central control computer and tell it to run a diagnostic on fuel drivers. When the computer locates the thermal detonator, it should order an abandoned ship. Boiny nodded in comprehension. Be sure to convince it to jettison all the cargo pods and barges, Cole added. With the same extraordinary nimbleness that had guided him to the terrorist's pod, Obi-Wan returned to the Jedi craft. Everything is in place, Master, he said. Qui-Gon motioned him toward the hatch, but Obi-Wan hadn't even raised a foot when all the pods in the hangar began to levitate and wheel toward one hangar portal or another. What's happening? Qui-Gon looked around in mild perplexity. They're jettisoning the cargo. Hardly the act of terrorists, Master. Qui-Gon's brow furrowed in thought. The central control computer wouldn't allow this unless the freighter was in serious jeopardy. Perhaps it is, Master. Qui-Gon agreed. Either way, Padawan, we're better off inside our craft. Unless Cole has failed in his mission, he should be arriving at any moment. Even Cole was out of breath by the time everyone reached Zone 3 and the waiting pod. Get the orodium stowed, he said to Boiny. Dolte Dauphine glanced worriedly at the countdown timer still affixed to the back of his hand. What is to become of us? he asked. A human member of Cole's band motioned broadly toward a large nearby pod that had yet to lift off. I suggest you unload that one and cram yourselves inside. Dauphine blinked back panic. We'll die in there. The human laughed scornfully. That's the idea. Dauphine looked at Cole. Your word. Cole twisted his head to one side to read the display on the countdown timer, then cut his eyes to Dauphine. If you hurry, you'll make it to the escape pods in time. Obi-Wan waited for the terrorist's pod to rise from the hangar deck before activating the repulsor lift engines. Cole had exited the hangar arm minutes earlier, but the tracker Obi-Wan had affixed assured that the Jedi would be able to single Cole's pod out from the now stampeding herd. Stay with them, Obi-Wan, but keep a fixed distance. We don't want to reveal ourselves just yet. With the bone-white center sphere looming and the broad sweep of the immense arms to either side, the inner district of the annular freighter was a sight to behold. But the erratic motion of the pods and barges exiting the ship left Obi-Wan little time to appreciate the view. 
He divided his attention between the flashing bezel that was Cole's pod on the heads-up display and the console screens, which showed exterior views to either side. Master, they're angling for the top of the center sphere. Captain Cole was never one to remain long in the herd. Obi-Wan fired the pod's attitude jets to adjust their course. They were almost to the crown of the center sphere when a lone starfighter streaked across one of the display screens, dual laser cannons loosing bursts at some unseen target. A nebula front cloak shape, Qui-Gon said in mild surprise. A sturdy, low-profile starfighter with down-sloping wings. Cloak shapes had been designed for atmospheric combat, but the terrorist group had retrofitted this one with rear-mounted maneuvering fins and a strap-on hyperdrive. But what are they firing at? Obi-Wan asked. Cole's pilots must have destroyed the Revenue's droid starfighters by now. I suspect we'll know soon enough, Padawan. Obi-Wan bristled slightly at the mild reprimand, but it was deserved. He had a habit of looking forward, as opposed to staying in the moment, as Qui-Gon preferred, of attending to what the Jedi called the living force. Well above the bold crown of the center sphere and the boxy scanners that topped the freighter's command tower, Cole's pod was gathering speed and, with bold maneuvers, was emerging from the cloud of pods within which it had hidden. In danger of falling too far behind, Obi-Wan called on the drives for added power. By the time they were coming around the top curve of the center sphere, Obi-Wan had greatly reduced the distance between the two pods. He was preparing to follow Cole into space when another starfighter, a modified Z-95 headhunter, flashed into view on the display screens and exploded. The battle continues, Qui-Gon said. Emerged from the embrace of the arms, the two Jedi saw the source of the return fire. Floating like a ring above Dorvala's night side was a second freighter engulfed in blossoms of fire sown by the nebula front ships. Trade Federation reinforcements, Obi-Wan said. That freighter could complicate matters, Qui-Gon mused. But surely we have coal this time. Coal is a sly one, Obi-Wan. He would have anticipated this. He doesn't make a move without a contingency plan. But, Master, without his support ships... Expect nothing, Qui-Gon interrupted. Simply stay your course. Inside the equally cramped quarters of the terrorists' pod, Cole's remaining band of eight carried out their pre-assigned tasks. Rella leaned toward him to whisper, Cole, if we survive this, I forgive you for saying yes to this operation to begin with. Cole had his mouth open to respond when Boyney said, Captain, something peculiar. Could be a fluke, but we've got one cargo pod hanging dead on our six. Show me. Cole said, cutting his violet eyes to the screen. Smack in the center, the one with the pointed snout. Cole fell silent for a moment, then said, Alter our course to 119. Rella set herself to the task. Boyne squeaked a nervous laugh. The pod's changing course to 119. Master, they're scanning us, Obi-Wan said. They're altering course as well. They're planning to hide in that cluster of cargo pods, Qui-Gon said, mostly to himself. It's time we give them something else to worry about, Obi-Wan. 
Activate the thermal detonator as soon as they're a bit farther from the freighter. Cole kept his eyes glued to the overhead display screen. What's the pod doing? Matching our every maneuver, Boiny replied. Something's not right, Cole said, shaking his head. I smell a womp rat. Boiny glanced at him. Never met one that could pilot a pod like that, Captain. Cole slapped the armrests in a gesture of finality. No more wasting time. Engage the primary fusials. Now you're talking, Rella remarked, carrying out the command. Without warning, Boiny all but shot from his seat, gesticulating madly at one of the console sensors. Captain, we've got a thermal detonator affixed to the pod's drive core. Cole stared at him in similar disbelief. How long to detonation? Thirty seconds and counting. Cole, Rella yelled, do something. Cole glanced at her, tight-lipped. All right, jettison the husk. Boiny tapped a flurry of commands into the console keypad. Charges activated, the Rodian reported. Separation in ten seconds. Cole sniffed. Times like this, you could see the faces of your adversaries. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan watched Cole's pod on their screens. Abruptly, a series of small explosions ringed the humpbacked craft along its equator, and it split into two parts, revealing an oblate shuttle concealed inside. The shuttle's fusial thrust engines ignited, and the craft rocketed away from the pieces of its discarded husk. Then the lower half exploded. That would be our thermal detonator, Qui-Gon said. And the tracking device? Affixed to the hull of the shuttle and still functioning, Master, Obi-Wan reported, gazing at the flashing bezel. Not without help, Padawan. You know what to do. Obi-Wan smiled as he reached for the controls. I only wish I could see Cole's face. Cole's mouth fell open as he watched the pursuing pod burst apart along a midline seam. Inside was a wingless Corellian lancet painted a telltale crimson from pointed nose to sleek-finned tail. It's flying Coruscant colors, Boiny said in astonishment. Judicial department. Matching us maneuver for maneuver, Rella reported as she wove the terrorist shuttle through a swarm of cargo pods and clusters of loose, lomite ore. Gaining on us, Boiny updated. Rella refused to accept it. Since when do judicials pilot like that? Who else could be piloting, one of the humans asked. It sure isn't Nemoidians. Cole locked eyes with Rella. Jedi? They said in unison. Cole considered it, then shook his head. What would the Jedi be doing out here? This isn't Republic space. Besides, no one knew about this operation. No one, Cole? Rella said leadingly. He frowned at her. Outside the nebula front, anyway. Rella studied the displays. We might still make the Hawkbat. Cole leaned toward the shuttle's wraparound viewport. Where is she? Holding at the rendezvous point above Dorvala's pole. Cole looked at Boiny. Run a surface scan of the shuttle hull. Surface scan? The Rodian asked dubiously. Now, Cole said sharply. Boiny bent over the console, then straightened in his seat. 
We're hosting a locator. Cole's eyes narrowed. They're hoping to track us. Correction, Cole, Rella said. They are tracking us. Cole ignored the remark and glanced at Boiny again. How much time before the revenue blows? Seven minutes. Can you calculate the shape of the freighter's explosion? Boiny and Rella swapped troubled glances. To a certain extent, the Rodian said in a tentative voice. Do it. Then give me your best estimate of the blast radius and the extent of the debris cloud. Boiny swallowed hard. Even my best estimate is going to be plus or minus a couple of hundred kilometers, Captain. Cole mulled it over in silence, then glanced at Rella. Come about, hard. She stared at him. It's confirmed. You've lost your mind. You heard me, Cole snapped. It's back to the freighter for us. Just inside the MagCon portal of the Inquisitor's portside hangar arm, Dolte Dauphine crawled indecorously from the barrel-shaped escape pod the freighter's powerful tractor beam had retrieved. The navigator and the rest followed him out. Commander Lagarde was on hand to meet them. It is an honor to rescue so celebrated a person, Lagarde said. Dauphine adjusted the fit of his robes and straightened his command miter. Yes, I'm sure it is, he replied. Did you do as I asked and contact Viceroy Gunray? Lagarde indicated the Nemoidian mechno chair that had probably conveyed him from the bridge. The Viceroy is eager to hear what you have to report. As am I, Commander. Dauphine pushed past Lagarde to get to the chair, which immediately began to move off in the direction of the center sphere, no doubt at Lagarde's remote behest. Gyroscopically balanced, the high-backed chair was more status symbol than practical mode of transport, but Dauphine had grasped that the chair had not been provided for his benefit. Where one would have sat was a circular hologram plate, from which projected the miniature holopresence of Viceroy Newt Gunray himself, leader of the Nemoidian Inner Circle and a member of the Seven-Person Trade Federation Directorate. Viceroy, Dauphine said, bowing in obeisance before he hurried to catch up with the slowly scuttling chair. Gunray had a jutting lower jaw and a deep fissure separating his bulging forehead into two lateral lobes. His skin was kept a healthy gray-blue by means of frequent massages and meals of the finest fungus. Red and orange robes of exquisite hand fell from his narrow shoulders and a black tiara triple-crested with a pair of dangling tails, sat atop his regal head. What is so urgent, Commander Dauphine? Gunray asked. Viceroy, it is my sad duty to report that the revenue has been seized by members of the Nebula Front. The cargo of Lomite ore floats in space, and even as we speak, an explosive device counts down the moments to the ship's destruction. So, Captain Core strikes again, Gunray said. Yes, Viceroy, but I bring news of an even more distressing nature. Dauphine glanced around him in the hope that Lagarde was out of earshot, but of course he wasn't. The cush of Orodium ingots, he said at last. Cole somehow knew about it. I had no recourse but to turn it over to him. 
expecting rebuke or worse, Delphine hung his head in shame as he trailed the mechno chair. But the Viceroy surprised him. The lives of you and your crew are at stake. Just so, Excellency. Then stand tall, Commander Dauphine. For what has happened today may well prove a boon for the Trade Federation and a blessing for all Nemoidians. A boon, Viceroy? Gunray nodded. I order you to assume command of the Inquisitor. Recall the droid starfighters and withdraw the freighter from combat. Cole is headed back to the freighter, Obi-Wan said from the controls of the Judicial Department starfighter. Could he have tricked the freighter into abandoning its cargo, even though it wasn't in jeopardy? I doubt it, Qui-Gon said. He pressed his face close to the Lancet's transparasteel canopy. All of Cole's support ships, even the Corvette, are distancing themselves from the revenue. It's true, Master. Even the Inquisitor is underway. Then we're safe in concluding that the freighter is marked for destruction. And yet, Captain Cole is speeding toward it. As we are, Master, Obi-Wan thought to point out. What could Cole have in mind? Qui-Gon asked himself aloud. He's not a man to undertake desperate acts, Obi-Wan, let alone suicidal ones. Obi-Wan's brow began to furrow in concern. Master, we're getting awfully close. If the freighter is truly marked for destruction... I realize that, Padawan. Perhaps Captain Cole is merely testing us. Qui-Gon watched the shuttle angle down toward the center of the circle that was the revenue. Stretching out with his feelings, he did not like what he found. Abort the pursuit, Obi-Wan, he said suddenly. Quickly! Obi-Wan fed full power to the Lancet's drives and pulled the yoke sharply toward him. At full boost, the ship climbed in a long loop away from the freighter. Suddenly, the revenue exploded. The four walls of Finnis Valorum's office, at the summit of the governmental district's stateliest, if not most statuesque edifice, were made of transparasteel. The city planet that was Coruscant, scintillant orb, jewel of the core, choked heart of the Galactic Republic, spread to all sides in a welter of lustrous domes, knife-edged spires, and terraced superstructures that climbed to the sky. As often as Valorum had beheld the view, which was to say nearly every day of his now seven years as Supreme Chancellor of the Republic, he had yet to grow indifferent to the spectacle of Coruscant. Pale hands clasped at his back, he stood at the bank of transparasteel windows that faced the dawn. Southern light, polarized by the panels, flooded the room, but Valorum's sole guest had taken a seat well out of the light's reach. I fear, Supreme Chancellor, that we face a monumental challenge, Senator Palpatine was saying from the shadows. Frayed at its far-flung borders and hollowed at its very heart by corruption, the Republic is in grave danger of unraveling. Order is needed. 
directives that will restore balance. Even the most desperate remedies should not be overlooked. Although such opinions had become the common sentiment, Palpatine's words pierced Valorum like a sword. The fact that he knew them to be true made them all the more difficult to hear. He turned his back to the view and returned to his desk, where he sat heavily into his padded chair. Aging with distinction, Valorum had a receding cap of shorn silver hair, pouches under piercing blue eyes and dark bushy brows. His stern features and deep voice belied a compassionate spirit and questing intellect. Where have we gone wrong? he asked. How did we manage to miss the portents along the way? Palpatine showed him an understanding look. The fault is not in ourselves, Supreme Chancellor. The fault lies in the outlying star systems, and the civil strife iniquity has engendered there. His voice was carefully modulated, occasionally world-weary, seemingly immune to anger or alarm. This most recent situation at Dorvala, for example. Valorum nodded soberly. The Judicial Department has requested that I meet with them later today, so they can brief me on the latest developments. Perhaps I could save you the trouble, Supreme Chancellor, at least in terms of what I've been hearing in the Senate. Rumor or facts? A bit of both, I suspect. Palpatine paused as if to gather his thoughts. Prominent in a kind, if somewhat doughy face, were his heavy-lidded, watery blue eyes and rudder of a nose. Red hair that had lost its youth he wore in the provincial style of the outlying systems, combed back from his high forehead, but left thick and long behind his low-set ears. A sectorial senator representing the outlying world of Naboo, along with thirty-six other inhabited planets, Palpatine had earned a reputation for integrity and frankness that had set him high in the hearts of many of his senatorial peers. As the Judicial Department is certain to tell you, he began at last, the mercenaries who assaulted and destroyed the Trade Federation vessel Revenue were in the employ of the Nebula Front terrorist group. How the Nebula Front learned that the freighter was carrying a fortune in Orodium ingots has yet to be established. But clearly, the Nebula Front planned to use the Orodium to finance additional acts of terrorism directed against the Trade Federation and perhaps against Republic colonies in the Outer Rim. Planned? Valorum said. All indications are that Captain Cole and his team of assassins perished in the explosion that destroyed the revenue. But the incident has had wide-ranging repercussions, nevertheless. I'm well aware of some of those, Valorum said with a note of disgust. As a result of continuing raids and harassment, the Trade Federation plans to demand Republic intervention, or failing that, Senate approval to further augment their droid contingent. Palpatine nodded. I must confess, Supreme Chancellor, that my first instinct was to refuse their requests out of hand. The Trade Federation is already too powerful, in wealth and in military might. However, I've since reassessed my position. Valorum regarded him with interest. I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts. Well, to begin with, the Trade Federation is made up of entrepreneurs, not warriors. The Nimordians especially are cowards in any theatre other than commerce. So granting them permission to enlarge their droid defences, slightly at any rate, 
doesn't concern me unduly. More important, there may be some advantage to doing so. Valorum interlocked his fingers and leaned forward. What possible advantage? Palpatine took a breath. In exchange for honoring their requests for intervention and additional defenses, the Senate would be in a position to demand that all trade in the outlying systems would henceforth be subject to Republic taxation. Valorum sat back in his chair, clearly disappointed. We've been through all this before, Senator. You and I both know that a majority of the Senate has no interest in what happens in the outer systems, much less in the free trade zones but they do care about what happens to the Trade Federation. Yes, because the shimmer-silk pockets of many a senatorial robe are being lined with graft from the Nemoidians. Valorum snorted. Self-indulgence is the order of the day. Undeniably so, Supreme Chancellor, Palpatine said tolerantly. But that in itself is no reason to allow the practice to continue. Of course not, Valorum said, but taxation isn't likely to solve anything. In fact, such a move could prompt the Trade Federation to abandon the outlying systems entirely in favor of more lucrative markets closer to the core, thus depriving Coruscant and its neighbors of important outer system resources and luxury goods, Palpatine interjected, seemingly by rote. Certainly the Nemoidians will see taxation as a betrayal, if for no other reason than the Trade Federation blazed many of the hyperspace routes that link the core to the outlying systems. Regardless, this could be the opportunity many of us have waited for, the chance to exercise Senate control over those very trade routes. Valorum shook his head slowly, then got to his feet and moved to the windows. Nothing would cheer me more than getting the upper hand on the Trade Federation. Then now is the time to act, Palpatine said. Valorum kept his gaze fixed on the distant towers. I could count on your support. Palpatine rose and joined him at the view. Let me be frank about that. My position as representative of an outlying sector places me in an awkward situation. Make no mistake about it, Supreme Chancellor. I stand with you in advocating central control and taxation. But Naboo and other outlying systems will undoubtedly be forced to assume the burden of taxation by paying more for Trade Federation services. He paused briefly. I would be compelled to act with utmost circumspection. Valorum merely nodded. That much said, Palpatine was quick to add, rest assured that I would do all in my power to rally Senate support for taxation. Valorum advanced a few steps and laid his hands on Palpatine's shoulders. You're a good friend, Senator. Palpatine returned the gesture. My interests are the interests of the Republic, Supreme Chancellor. It was said that one could live out an entire life on Coruscant without once leaving the building called home. The planet's original surface was so long forgotten and so seldom visited that it had become an underworld of mythic dimension— whose denizens actually boasted of the fact that their subterranean realm hadn't seen the sun in twenty-five thousand standard years. Closer to the sky, however, where the air was continually scrubbed and giant mirrors lit the floor of shallower canyons, wealth and privilege ruled. Here, kilometers above the murky depths, resided those who fashioned their own rarefied atmospheres 
who moved about by private sky limo and who ventured below the two-kilometer level only to conduct transactions of a sinister sort, or to visit the statuary-studded squares that fronted those landmark structures whose sublime architecture hadn't been raised, buried, or walled in by mediocrity. One such landmark was the Jedi Temple. A kilometer-high truncated pyramid crowned by five elegant towers, it soared above its surroundings, purposefully isolated from the babble of Coruscant's overlapping electromagnetic fields, and holding forth against the blight of modernization. The design of the temple was said to be symbolic of the Padawan's path to enlightenment, to unity with the Force through fealty to the Jedi codes. But the design artfully concealed a secondary and more practical purpose, in that the quincunx of towers, four oriented to the cardinal directions with a taller one rising from the center, were whiskered with antennae and transmitters that kept the Jedi abreast of circumstances and crises throughout the galaxy they served. Thus had contemplation and social responsibility been given equal voice. Nowhere in the temple was that wedding of purposes more evident than in the elevated chamber of the Reconciliation Council. Like the High Council Chamber, at the summit of an adjacent tower, the room was circular, with an arched ceiling and tall windows all around. But less formal, it lacked the ring of seats occupied only by the twelve members of the High Council, who presided over matters of momentous concern. Qui-Gon Jinn had been back on Coruscant for three standard days before the Reconciliation Council had asked him to appear before it. The Reconciliation Council was made up of five members, though rarely the same five, and today there were only four on hand. Jedi Masters Plo Koon, Apo Ranchesis, Adi Gallia, and Yoda. Qui-Gon fielded their questions from the center of the room, where he would have been permitted to sit, but had elected to stand. How knew you, Qui-Gon, of Captain Cole's designs on the revenue, eh? Yoda asked as he paced the polished stone floor, supported by his gimmerstick cane. I have a contact in the nebula front, Qui-Gon replied. Yoda stopped moving to regard him. A contact, you say? A bith, Qui-Gon said. He made contact with me on Malastare, and later apprised me of Cole's plan to attack the revenue at Torvala. On Dorvala, I was able to learn that Cole had altered a cargo pod to suit his ends. Obi-Wan and I did the same. Yoda shook his head back and forth in seeming astonishment. News this is? One of Qui-Gon's many surprises? An ancient and diminutive alien, a patriarch of sorts, Yoda had an almost human face with large knowing eyes, a small nose, and a thin-lipped mouth. But most similarities to the human species ended there, for he was green from hairless crown to triple-digited feet, and his ears were large and pointed, extending from the sides of his wizened head like small wings. Qui-Gon, Adigalia said, we were given to understand that the Nebula Front had hired Captain Cole. What was your contact's purpose in sabotaging an operation the Nebula Front itself had sanctioned? She was a young and handsome human woman from Corellia, with exotic eyes, a long slender neck, and full lips. Tall and dark-complexioned, she wore a tight-fitting skullcap, from which dangled eight tails, resembling seed pods. Qui-Gon turned to her. The operation was not sanctioned. That's why my Padawan and I were there. Yoda lifted his gimmer stick to point at Qui-Gon. 
Explain this you must. Qui-Gon folded his thick arms across his chest. The nebula front speaks for many worlds in the mid and outer rims, which contest the prohibitive practices and strong-arm tactics of the Trade Federation. Some of those worlds were originally colonized by species who fled the civilized repression of the core. Fiercely independent, they want no part of the Republic, and yet in order to trade they are forced to do business with consortiums like the Trade Federation. Worlds that have attempted to ship with other enterprises have found themselves cut off from trade entirely. The Nebula Front may have laudable goals, but their methods are ruthless, Upper Ranchesis commented. A sign of royalty from Thispius, he had red-rimmed eyes and a tiny mouth and a large head that was otherwise covered entirely by dense white hair, piled high at the crown and extending from his hidden chin in a long beard. Go on, Qui-Gon, Plo Koon told him from beneath the mask he was forced to wear in oxygen-rich environments. Like Ranchesis, Kuhn had a keen mind for military strategy. Qui-Gon tipped his head in a bow of acknowledgment. Without trying to justify the actions of the Nebula Front, I will say that they tried to reason with the Trade Federation before turning to acts of terrorism. Even when they finally did turn to violence, they restricted their actions to interfering with Trade Federation shipments or delaying their vessels whenever possible. Destroying a freighter is certainly one way to delay it, Ranchesis said. Qui-Gon glanced at him. Cole's actions were something new. Then what drove the Nebula Front to escalate the violence? Gullia asked. Qui-Gon sensed that she was asking as much for the sake of the Council as for Supreme Chancellor Valorum, with whom she had close ties. My contact claims that the Nebula Front has grown a radical wing, and it is those militants who contracted with Captain Cole. The Bith and many others were opposed to employing mercenaries, but the militants have assumed command of the organization. Yoda rubbed his chin in thought. After the Orodium ingots, were they not? Qui-Gon shook his head. Frankly, Master, I'm not sure if I accept the Federation's claim. You have reason to doubt it? Kuhn asked. It's a question of method. The Trade Federation concedes a preoccupation with safeguarding their cargoes. Why, then, would they entrust a shipment of Oridium to a poorly defended freighter like the Revenue when the more heavily armed Inquisitor was only a star system away? A point he has, Yoda said. The question is of little consequence, Galia said. The use of mercenaries like Cole signals the beginning of a coordinated campaign to counter the Trade Federation's droid defenses by force and ultimately to overthrow Trade Federation influence in the outlying systems. Fortunately, Captain Cole is no longer a concern, Plo Koon remarked. Yoda adopted a wide-eyed look. Concern Qui-Gon Cole does? Qui-Gon felt the Council's close scrutiny. I don't believe that he perished with the freighter, he said at last. A small human world disdained by an aging sun... Nemoidia was a place to be avoided, even by Nemoidians. Instead of profiting from its relative proximity to self-reliant Corellia and industrialized Kuat, Nemoidia had actually suffered for its placement, having been passed over time and again by the fraternity of core worlds. That heritage of being shunned had informed Nemoidian society. 
Scorn had imparted to the species a conviction that progress came to only those who proved themselves not merely capable, but predatory. That tenet was frequently offered as explanation as to how and why the Nemoidians had risen so rapidly to the fore of the Trade Federation, whose signature was callousness. Nemoidia's most able typically left home at an early age, opting for lives of itinerant trading aboard the vessels of the Trade Federation fleet. Viceroy Newt Gunray shared with his fellow self-exiles a peculiar distaste for his homeworld. But circumstance had demanded that he meet with the members of his inner circle in a location that guaranteed protection from the prying eyes of Coruscant. And in that sense, Nemoidia provided the best possible sanctuary. The Mechno chair carried the Viceroy to the meeting place, through cavernous halls of finely cut stone and past row after row of protocol droids standing at attention on both sides. His ultimate destination was a dark, dank grotto, the antithesis of the gleaming bridges of Trade Federation freighters. Gunray's key advisors were waiting. Deputy Viceroy Hathmanchar and legal counsel Rune Hako, and they made deferential gestures to Gunray as the Mechno chair eased him onto his feet. Welcome, Viceroy, Hako said, approaching him, stooped and limping, his left arm crooked by his side. We hope you have not come in vain. Hollow-cheeked and somewhat spidery, he had a deeply lined face. Gunray made a harsh gesture of dismissal. He said he would come. That is enough for me. For you, Monchar muttered. Gunray glared at his deputy. Events transpired just as he promised they would. Cole's mercenaries attacked, and the revenue was destroyed. And this is a reason to rejoice? Hako asked. This plan of yours has cost the Trade Federation a Class I freighter and billions in erodium. Gunray's nictating membranes betrayed his seeming self-possession. He blinked repeatedly, then quickly regained his composure. One ship and a treasure box. If our benefactor really is who he claims to be, such losses are meaningless. Hako raised a palsied hand. And if he is, he is a thing to fear, not to delight in. And how can we be certain in any case? What proof does he offer, Viceroy? He contacts you out of the ether, only by hologram. He can claim to be anyone. 